最前沿的科学研究。Since the structure of DNA was co-discovered in 1953, scientists began to unravel nature's genetic code. Although the worm C. elegans genome only consists of 100 million DNA-based pairs, the human genome is much longer and more sophisticated at 3 billion. As technology exponentially improved and computational power skyrocketed, the ability to understand and dissect human genomic datasets finally came into fruition. Recently. Researchers at MIT, led by Dr. Manolis Kallis and Dr. Sai, analyzed the transcriptomes of 48 post-mortem brain samples. From these 48 samples, half were from people with Alzheimer's disease pathology, and the other half from healthy individuals. Dr. Kallis is a professor of computer science at MIT, the head of the MIT Computational Biology Group, as well as the principal investigator of the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. His group at MIT aims to further our understanding of the human genome by using computational methods for large-scale genomic datasets. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Kellis. Welcome to the show. So I know Manolis through a symposium at MIT called "Meaning of Life." He's the organizer of this exciting symposium where different people reflect on the meaning of life. This was one of those questions that always make me ponder. Recently, I started to talk to my colleagues about. This and their insights on the meaning of life and why we search for meaning. So my first question for you is, what the meaning of life is? <laughs> so, I it's funny being put on the spot. So there's many ways to ask that question. So the first one is life itself. What does it mean for something to be alive? And I teach a computational biology course. Where yeah, I start first lecture, not only what is computational biology, but、yeah. what is biology and、right. what is life. And the definition of life is very interesting. It's、uh, it's got many components. One of them is obviously metabolism, being able to transform something from the outside world to be part of yourself. The other one is, of course, replication, being able to make more of yourself. This whole self-beneficial, self-propagating kind of aspect. The third one is the sense of self, the definition of. Me versus the rest of the world. You know, the first aspect of the meaning of life is what is life, and life is so much more complex than these three definitions. If you look at life today, life has undergone a series of traumatic transformations on our planet. If you look at how complex life is today, if you take a human today, they're clearly alive, but there's so much more to life than those three principles. Part of the whole meaning of life symposium was basically answering the question of what makes us human. What is it to be alive?、Mm -hmm. And we share so much with so many different species、mm -hmm. that it is worth perhaps taking that whole series of evolutionary milestones, if you wish. The first is the the first ring that I mentioned, which、mm -hmm. is life starting. The the next one after that is collaboration, cooperation, being nice, altruism.、Mm -hmm. So the very definition of life is that cells choose to live together. A very simple view of life is that life is trying to take over.、Mm -hmm. Life is there for itself. It just wants to make more of itself、mm -hmm. at the detriment of everything around it. But 
if you look at the life that has really thrived on mm -hmm. the planet, it's really collaborative life. It is really multicellularity. It is really bacteria living in communities. It is really sort of archaea terraforming and sort of helping other organisms and photosynthesis and all of that. All of these different aspects are really about collaboration. And I think that's the first major milestone after the formation of life itself. And then the third one after that is how do you go beyond just, you know, persisting and subsisting to a more meaningful life. And I think that's where humans come in, going beyond that sort of daily thing to a, a search for higher meaning, for not just finding your purpose, but is there, you know, a meaning to it all? There's a couple things that I, I kind of picked up on. Yeah. First, um, when you talked about humans and what, what makes us unique and as a species, we're probably the only species who can ponder about what is the meaning <laughs> of life, right? That's the first thing, right? Yeah. And the second thing you mentioned in your second point is this idea of altruism, right? Yeah. And that's definitely a very positive perspective on how life forms, but, you know, from the individual standpoint of life. I'm not super sure if the individual organism thinks about how do I survive such that it's mutually beneficial for everyone else. It's more like the single organism, how do I survive, right? So can you talk a little bit more about why you think it's more altruistic, collaborative, and less just survival? There's a whole meta-evolution aspect of sort of the species that evolve and that survive are not only the ones that got better at living, mm -hmm. but they also got better at adapting. So in my view, there's a first round of evolution which selects for evolvability for adaptability and therefore for getting better at the whole process of evolution. And that's one meta aspect. The other meta aspect is that the organisms that survive are the ones that do not destroy their environment and okay. do not destroy everyone else. If you look at the viruses that are the most successful, they're the ones that don't immediately kill the host. That makes so, sense. So going <laughs> all out and killing everything around you to survive mm -hmm. also means that whatever ecosystem and you know biosphere you live in, will not be as successful. It's obviously not that the organisms are consciously saying, oh, I better be nice. Yeah. It's simply that those whose genetics led them to be nicer had a beneficial effect on the environment that they lived in and that environment along with the other organisms within it persisted. Now, there's a choice, of course, that all of us make. Should I be nice? And the way that I think about this is also a little bit universe level. So if you look at the entire universe, 99.99999% of the mass, matter, and energy in the universe is brutal. No one can actually survive there. Mm -hmm. And there's tiny little pockets of paradise. Yeah. The Earth is obviously one of them. Yeah. There's many exoplanets that we know about now that are not as brutal as the right. rest of the universe. And if you look at the entire span of time mm -hmm. since the creation of the universe, a lot of the universe was very brutal. And it's a blink of an eye that life has actually lived mm -hmm. on this planet. If you're a molecule in the universe over the entire existence, you're kind of lucky to be who you are right now. Number one, you're kind of lucky to be in this part of space on Earth, at this time on Earth, to be a living mm -hmm. set of molecules, <laughs> to be an animal among all living set of molecules, and to be a human, and to be a human living in this day and age. How can you make it any better than that? You can basically make that part of the universe, that tiny little part that's super, super friendly, mm -hmm. a little nicer. And honey, can push that tiny little blimp of this local maximum to even nicer by being nice to others. So, so altruism, in my view, is the thing that we can do to make this tiny little blip of the universe's mm -hmm. space-time continuum even nicer. Before we dig deeper into your findings with the Nature paper, yeah. I would like to hear your thoughts why genomics has a crucial role right now in, in research and in general in life. Yeah. So... 
In my view, computational biology and genomics are sort of intertwined, and I'm going to answer collectively for both, which is that many, many answers come. Many of the answers are data. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of combinations of data. So data square. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interactions. There's a lot of dynamics. There's a lot of networks. There's visualization. Uh, being able to sort of do the right experiments by predicting what experiments you should be doing and, you know, guide the search in a huge search space of possibilities for hypotheses using data integration and so on and so forth. But uh, the last comment that always comes up, life itself is digital. Humans like to think that we're the inventors of the first digital computer. We are the descendants of the first <laughs> digital computer. Mm -hmm. Every one of our cells has a digital core. The nucleus contains digital information. And there's a lot of, I mean, of course, the, the world around us is analog, except for quantum effects, obviously, but at the scale that we humans inhabit and, you know, interact in, um, you know, most of the world is analog. There's mm -hmm. continuum in, you know, everything. And there's a lot of, you know, analog to digital conversion going on in our senses, in our auditory system, in our, uh, you know, visual system, in our touch, in our neuron firing. There's a mm -hmm. lot of sort of thresholds and binarizations. So the concept that inside ourselves runs a digital computer, interacting with this analog world around us mm -hmm. and making effectively computations, that there's a grammar, that sure. there's rules, that Absolutely. there's a DNA code, that there's mm -hmm. programming language that governs how our cells work, in my view as a computer scientist by training, is very empowering. It basically says, well, in order to understand biology, not only could you use some computer science, but in my view, computer science is fundamental and foundational in understanding how life works. And the concept of basically using genomics, using data, using computer science, in my view, brings order to an otherwise extremely difficult to navigate field. This can be very limiting in many ways because it will sort of constrain you to only answer questions that are addressable by these data. But at the same time, starting with massive amounts of data means that you suddenly end up with a quantitative field. So I think genomics and computational biology can really complement the traditional scientific method and the scientific approach by sort of flipping things around on their head. Mm -hmm. Instead of having a hypothesis, gathering a gazillion data points and then ending up with a yes-no answer, we're basically starting with a gazillion data points mm -hmm. and then saying, okay, well, what the that telling us? And then pushing science forward that will then walk together hand-in-hand -hand with the traditional scientific approach, because the two are quite opposite in their approach and very powerful together. Can you give us an overview of your journey in science? So I am a, a Greek kid. My house was in the center of Athens. My summer house was by the waterfront on the Aegean Sea. And that's where my love of science started, obviously. I don't know if it's Neil deGrasse who basically said, oh, people complain that we don't teach kids enough physics. We don't expose them to physics. And uh, his answer is, of course, they do physics all the time. They experiment with physics all the time. We just don't let them. Every time they're pouring the milk down the table, we say, stop doing that. So I basically did uh, uninhibited physics experiments my entire youth, throwing stones around, you know, looking at nature all around me. Basically, I was swimming every day and then playing outside all day. And I think it's very hard not to become a scientist after that, because basically the world is just a fascinating place. And if, you know, as soon as you put on a mask, you realize how boring the life forms outside the water are. Anyway, I've been always passionate about life, evolution, the relationship of these different creatures to each other. I then moved from Greece when I was 12 to France. I became a French kid. And then I moved to New York when I was 16. And then I came to MIT at 18. 
And MIT was just a brain explosion. It was mm -hmm. just amazing to be able to do anything, ask anything, collaborate with anyone, and to be treated as a peer by your professors, to be respected for your ideas, no matter how young and inexperienced you may have been. So that concept that I, as an undergraduate, could start doing research was awesome. And I, I joined the 6A program at MIT, which is this partnership that computer science has with a lot of research centers around the U.S., where you get to spend your summers doing research on pretty advanced topics. So my first research exposure was in the World Wide Web Consortium, working mm -hmm. with Tim Berners-Lee, building a, one of the first uh, crawlers to start crawling the entire web at the time and catalog everything. The second project was building decentralized robots that sort of talk to each other at Xerox Park. The third project was my first publication, I was like 19, on computational geometry, 3D surface reconstruction from a cloud of points, basically, how do you construct that? Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one was looking at human motion analysis, not one joint at a time, but one movement at a time. So basically whole body a movement of humans in the office environment, in different places. So that basically uh, exposed me to such a diverse range of research, but also a diverse range of applications of computer science to understanding the natural world around us. I switched to biology my senior year. So basically when I finished my master's thesis as part of my senior year, I basically started reading and writing about evolution and sort of how does the process of evolution work? How about meta-evolution, about getting better at evolving and sort of how do you record all those, you know, false trajectories and how do you record all those alternative paths? And that's when I started learning about biology. And one day I, I ran into my friend Serafim Batsoglu and one day I see him reading the genetics book and I'm like, wait a minute, you're a computer scientist and so am I. Why are you reading the genetics book that I was reading yesterday evening to learn more about biology? And he tells me, oh, wait, wait a minute, let me show you. So we went to his lab and he showed me all of the code that he was writing to assemble the human genome. And I was like, I know how to write code. I'm not impressed. Show me the data. So he opened up a text file that had pages and pages and pages of ACGT. And to me, that was the crux of a career shift. When I saw that there was data about our own human genome in a text file ready to be mined, I was like, oh my goodness sign me up. Within days, I had started meeting with Eric and with Bonnie and understanding how can I write programs that interpret the human genome. My very first project had been sitting around, several other students had just not been interested, and they had this data from yeast. And I started analyzing these data sets to basically see how we can understand the yeast genome. They had sequenced parts of three other species of yeast. And I started lining up reads from these species on top of each other and realizing that the different parts of the genome evolved in completely different ways. And the concept of an evolutionary signature was born. But that was the first time that someone had done it at the whole genome scale for multiple species, mm -hmm. because at the time, sequencing was very, very expensive. And then there was one week at the Genome Sequencing Center where they didn't have enough reagents to, to sequence methylated genomes. So they had to do some unmethylated genomes. So my little yeast project was very lucky because there's no methylation in those species. So we were able to sequence a lot more of my little yeast. You know, that resulted in massive amounts of data for comparative genomics. So that allowed me to now develop the first way of understanding the genome systematically from a genomicist perspective to basically simply say, let's build completely new tools that look at the patterns of change through time. And from that, infer where are the genes, where are the control regions, 
can we systematically understand the entire circuitry of the yeast genome simply through the lens of evolution. And we wrote a series of papers in yeast, in fly, in worm, in human for understanding the genome systematically through the lens of comparative genomics. The challenge, of course, then was what about the dynamics? What about understanding what tissues and what cells, how they, they act in different ways? Mm -hmm. And that's where the field of epigenomics was just starting out, basically going from the modifications of the DNA and the histone proteins that DNA is wrapped around to learning yet another layer of information that allows us to understand the human genome. Mm -hmm. My group developed the first epigenomic signatures mm -hmm. for systematically understanding different classes of elements mm -hmm. in the human genome. And that basically gave us the foundations for understanding the entire human genome. We could now go and carry out genetic variation studies systematically across thousands upon thousands of people. That led to the discovery of genetic associations across the entire human genome in a completely unbiased way for the first time. That basically told us what are the important nucleotides in human disease. And that's when we realized that 93% of these common variants associated with disease were not affecting the proteins. And that's where the circuitry of the human genome took center place, because that's where the mutations are happening. So suddenly my group shifted to studies of disease and how all these tools that we were building for understanding the genome systematically through comparative genomics, epigenomics, and regulatory genomics could now be utilized to understand disease systematically. Mm -hmm. And I like to say that in the same way that biology was unified with the advent of molecular biology, I think that genomics is unifying disease studies. How do we understand how to link genetic mutations to genes across any tissue and any disorder in a systematic way. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what led to the transformation of my lab into polyspecialist, where basically we have collaborations now with many different specific labs on understanding many different disorders mm -hmm. and focusing extremely specifically, but with different experts mm -hmm. each time. Yeah. And so how did you turn your eye on Alzheimer's disease? Through these collaborations, we basically started with partnerships with many other labs around MIT, Boston, and also the entire United States. And uh, with Li Hui, the collaboration started very organically. So my postdoc, Andreas, was friends with her postdoc, Elizabeth, and they started chatting and they start, started building a project together. And they are the ones who brought us in. <laughs> it wasn't me meeting Li Hui. Our postdocs were already collaborating when she and I met which is like the most natural way of making a collaboration. And that's sort of what turned a lot of the focus on Alzheimer's. Okay. And the first collaboration with Li Hui was basically the, the one that showed just how important these non-coding mutations are in the immune system. What we found at the time mm -hmm. by looking at all of the genetic variants associated with Alzheimer's disease was that when we correlated them with where are these regions active in the body, we expected them to show up in our brain samples. Mm -hmm. They did not. So we basically said, well, what are they enriched in? And what they were enriched in was CD14 plus cells, monocytes, that are the signature of both macrophages in the circulating blood and microglia in the brain. So that result at the time told us that there was something going on in Alzheimer's that was not brain. The reason is that our brain samples were 60% neurons, another 20% oligodendrocytes, Another 10% astrocytes, only 5% microglia. Mm -hmm. Nothing lit up in brain because it was mostly neurons and other glial cells. 
and microglia, which are the immune cells of the brain, are in fact extremely rare in those bulk samples. Now we have a completely new technology for studying the human body, single cell profiling of the whole genome. So what we were able to do with Liwei is now say, well, great, let's find out what changes in every major cell type of the brain when Alzheimer's hits. So we basically went back to the Religious Order Study and Memory and Aging Project, the ROSMAP project that David Bennett has been leading for the last two decades. And we said, let's take Alzheimer's individuals defined by their amyloid beta deposition and control individuals that do not show amyloid beta and ask what are the differences between them at the single cell level. So single cell RNA sequencing allows you to now look at thousands of genes in every one of thousands of cells for their expression levels. This is the first study that basically looked at many individuals in a complex tissue with single cell RNA sequencing. What we found is that you could see dramatic alterations in every single major cell type. The genetic variants were localizing in microglia processes, and that suggests that microglia have a very strong role in propagating these very subtle genetic changes, but that ultimately what was changing in Alzheimer's disease was not just the microglia. The neurons were dramatically altered. Oligodendrocytes that many people have laughed at in terms of, oh, that's the one thing that we at least know is not involved in Alzheimer's disease, were front and center in being dramatically altered. Mm -hmm. Astrocytes, microglia, every single cell type had thousands of genes that were differentially active between AD and non-AD individuals. And that opened up a completely new door for basically starting completely new directions and avenues of investigation related to Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. And a very big surprise from our paper was dramatic differences between men and women. If you look at men and women and how their cells are different in Alzheimer's disease, you see a completely different view. We basically find 6,000 genes mm -hmm. are differentially expressed. So that, that is dramatic. That basically says that we should really be thinking of our clinical trials as men and women mm -hmm. separately. And if you look at the underlying processes that, are, that were altered, what we basically found is that myelination, what coats the axonal projections of neurons, something that is at the core of multiple sclerosis, was in fact front and center, but only for women. And we went back at radiology images that were done decades ago, and we basically found that there are indeed statistically significant differences in the level of myelination between men and women. Is that correlated with the clinical symptoms as well? Absolutely. But we had yet to pinpoint a single molecular process that was so different. Therapeutically, we now have to go after myelination as one of the processes and focus on women and men as separate cohorts. All right, so you talked a lot about um, the great things that you can get from genomic studies, but what are some of the limitations of these type of methods? If you look at neuroscience now, what does it not measure? If you want to look at neuronal interactions, which neuron is talking to which other neuron? That's still not possible. We're now collaborating with Ed Boyden and Li Hui and others to basically develop technologies for doing that. If you want to look at the interactions between neurons and all the glial cells that surround them, there's still no way to mm -hmm. do that. If you want to look at the spatial relationship, well, spatial transcriptomics is somewhat enabling, but it doesn't capture the complexity that we really want to capture, especially for glial cells. So yes, there's major limitations in terms of cellular interactions, in terms of context spatially, connecting that with functional data, connecting that with behavioral data. 
All of these different things are foundational, but not yet accessible. So a lot of people consider your study is the most comprehensive single cell transcriptomic study of the human brain. So I agree with that assessment. And that simply has to do with a combination of technology, hard work and biology. We have since gone much, much further than that study. We've done a lot of automations. So we now have 600 individuals profiled at a single cell level. So there's a lot more coming. And we're now looking at many other disorders. We're looking at Alzheimer's, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia, AD and psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, Down syndrome, autism, depression, suicide, post-traumatic stress wow. disorder, and just healthy aging. Mm-hmm. So right, right now we're understanding how are these processes altered in so many different disorders What are the commonalities? What are the distinct pathways? What are the differences? How is every cell type changing? What are the contribution of the different cell types? How are different regions of the brain changing? How are men different from women? How is aging and other behavioral factors? How are environmental factors, such as looking for the meaning of life, uh, <laughs> alter all of these disorders? Can, can we leverage genomics to answer the meaning of life? The answer is yes. The answer is that we are, we are collaborating on that. And basically, if you look at meditation, if you look at religion, yeah. if you look at, you know, exercise, if you look at, you know, goodwill, all right. of these things can be phenotypically assessed. They absolutely affect late life behaviors and systems and clinical diagnosis in ways that are just simply greatly underestimated. Mm-hmm. So, yes, there, there is the genomics of the meaning of life that, wow. uh, that we're, you know, currently working on. That's sort of where my lab is heading in many ways, basically being able to understand the human from a systems perspective, not just as a bunch of different cells, but as a set of interconnected systems. Thank you so With much. With that, thank you very much thank for you guys. such an incredible discussion and conversation, not only on your astonishing research, but also on life and genomics. Thank you so much. Thank It's you. been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to Science Rehashed. If you love the podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Our next podcast will feature the legendary Dr. Bob Langer. Tune in next time.